You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, thank you, Matt and Megan and our band. I always find myself just getting caught up in worship and imagining you, meaning us, in all the different contexts of your homes or driving around in a truck, as we've heard someone's driving around in the, what, the Black Hills of South Dakota right now. Uh, that's kind of amazing. And uh, just the thought of us worshiping together. Since we started singing songs, I got a notification that as of about 1 a.m. this morning, our brother and elder Doug Coltman is um, pain-free and is on the way to recovery. So praise God. I mean, uh, the fact that we prayed and it was already answered is just like our God. So it also reminds me that if you, where you are, are feeling anxious, experiencing fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and you would like prayer, then we want to invite you, as we have all the time, to go ahead and text the word prayer to this number that you're going to see on screen. Text prayer to this number, and we'll do our best to get back to you as soon as we can. Incidentally, that's also the same number. We would love to uh, receive any giving that you would like to do because of our ministries of our church continue to move forward. We want to invite you. That's a primary number that we hope you have in your phone to talk about prayer, to get connected with other believers. This is what the church is and does. So if there's something going on, I've already heard from you via email and text that a lot of you experiencing uh, some issues because of what's going on in our world with family members or friends of family members who are passing away. So we want to know about that. We want to pray with you. Again, as I've already said, when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. Well, it brings us this morning to our teaching and our text this morning. It is the start of what we call Holy Week, Palm Sunday. It's the week uh, inaugurated on our Christian calendar as Palm Sunday, that week when Jesus's triumphal entry took place. And Holy Week will conclude with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday morning, what we call Easter. Now, Mike has already said that we'll gather together as one church virtually from this campus on Good Friday at 6 p.m. And then on Sunday morning, our Easter service, will have one great gathered service per campus again. So we look forward to you being a part of what we're doing there. But this really is a significant time in the church in terms of Palm Sunday, the start of Holy Week. But it's also an incredibly important time in the life of the church because to my knowledge, in the history of the church in our nation, we've never not gathered on Easter Sunday morning. So this is pretty significant. It's hard to believe that we are a part of a church in our country and our culture and context that won't be gathered together bodily in close proximity on Easter Sunday morning. But that's what's going on. And we, we might as well uh, get used to it for at least a few more weeks. So we're gonna see how the Lord leads there. So while we're here, uh, it's important to know why we are here why we're doing church the way we're doing, and, and really what is the church? It's a good time to have a good look at our ecclesiology. And as we're gonna look at our text here in just a moment, what we're gonna find is that our text is supporting three great grand old marks of the church. First, there is distance. The church can't always be gathered together in close proximity, and we're certainly feeling that now. So the church must be all about distance. Secondly, the church has to be about the defense of or the declaration of doctrine. 
There is a teaching of God's word that sets the foundation and the basis for everything else that we do in worship, instruction, in fellowship, in evangelism. The teaching of God's word, the defense of doctrine is fundamental. And then finally, as we're gonna see in our passage, it's about doxology, about having the right opinion of God, having the opinion of God that matches that of God's opinion of himself. So having said all that about the church, as we huddle up together in our individual isolated contexts, perhaps even some of us in a quarantine context, we deliver this church gathered together digitally. It doesn't feel very triumphant, I gather. But there's more on that later because I have some very good news. As Mike has already said, this is our final sermon in the series through the book of Romans that we started way back in August of last year. None of us had any idea that the sermon series is gonna end up in this way, and yet God is not surprised. So I just wanna quickly remind you as we land this plane on the book of Romans, that the book of Romans is the gospel of God. The theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's really good news. The one thing that we have to get done, achieving or obtaining right standing before a holy God has been done for us already in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul takes 16 chapters to expound and to exposit that great, wonderful truth that he sees in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. So how does Paul organize his content? Well, the first three chapters are telling us that we've all got a problem. It is the doctrine of condemnation, whether Jew or Gentile, all of us fall short of the glory of God. But then Paul pivots and he gives us chapters four and five, which are the doctrines of justification, where a person is found guilty, but declared righteous. They now have, because of what God says about them, he has chosen to change his mind about them. They now have right standing with God. And yet their functional, practical, walking around everyday life might not actually change all that much initially. And so Romans 6, 7, and 8 are all about the doctrines of sanctification, how a person increasingly is conformed into the image of the Son of God. Chapter eight concludes by Paul telling us that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. And to use an illustration, Paul then gives us a national example with Israel. And he takes chapters nine, 10, and 11 to say nothing, not even the circumstance of the nation of Israel demonstrates God's faithlessness. Oh no, God is faithful. He will get it done. After 11 chapters of straight doctrine, finally in chapter 12, we get this rapid fire burst of imperatives, this staccato series of exhortations of now what we are supposed to do in view of all of God's mercy. Last week, we looked at chapter 15 together and we saw that Paul really was emphatic about these people in Rome giving the gospel to one another in every single gathering. This gospel, we, we say around here, the gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. So Paul has given this great letter to the church at Rome and he's expounded the gospel over and over and over again. How do you suppose he's going to land the plane? How is he gonna wrap up this lengthy theological treatise to the churches in Rome? Well, if you were with us on Wednesday, you know that we actually began and sort of 
quickly summarized the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 16, wherein Paul gives us 26 names that he's super fond of, that he has a great deal of affection for. He tells us that all these different people, and they all have different kinds of names. Some of them are Jewish, some of them are Gentiles. Some of them are people of high standing. Some of them are probably not. As a matter of fact, two of the people in that list don't even actually have real names. Their names are Tertius and Quartus. That literally means third and fourth. That's their names. As they go down in Holy Scripture for the last 2,000 years, which has led many people, and I agree, to believe that these are probably slaves who were just known by third and fourth. They might've been brothers, they might not have, we don't know. But Tertius is actually the one who writes the letter on behalf of Paul. And they're just called third and fourth. So people of Jewish background, Gentile background, all different ethnicities we see. We see people from North Africa listed. We see people from all over the known world. And here they are gathered together as the church. And Paul has great affection for them and great attention for them. How, why? He's never known them before. Well, because apparently he had been given a great report of them from Priscilla and Aquila. He might've known some of them previously from all of his travels and they themselves made it to Rome potentially. But here's what we can pretty well gather. Paul had been praying for them fervently and frequently, which is a good principle for us in the church, even today, and with what we're experiencing in our world. The principle goes like this. We must always express affection and attention to one another, even from a distance. We must always express affection and attention to one another, even from a distance. I asked you on Wednesday to pick out five people from our congregation and to pray for them persistently, passionately, frequently, and fervently. And I would love to hear from some of you, if you've been doing that, how the Lord has blessed you through that process. Apparently, the distance between where Paul was when he wrote this letter in Corinth to Rome didn't feel that great at all because he was always mindful of and praying for these people. So if you've got nobody else to pray for, you didn't hear us on Wednesday, let me invite you to add Elisa Morrison and the Coltmans to your prayer list and pray for these people. You will be the one that is blessed. Well, after Paul has done all of this and he's given them the gospel, like every good parent, he's going to have one final send-off. He's given them all of this teaching, all of this doctrine, all of this instruction, all of this exhortation, and they're about to leave for college, you might say. What's the last thing Paul, the pastor, the apostle, the parent is going to say? It's kind of like when I was leaving for school and for some reason I already had my stuff all packed in my car. I was closing the door and my mom hollered out, don't forget to brush your teeth. Like the very end of my time living at home, that's her last blurting exhortation and it's always stuck with me. So what's going to be the last exhortation that Paul's going to write as he concludes this letter to the church at Rome? Well, it's gonna be our big idea for the morning and it goes like this. We're never not in danger of deviant doctrine. I want us to hear that. This is how Paul wraps up the book of Romans after all of this instruction and teaching. His biggest concern is that they somehow get blunted, that they somehow get distracted or deflected. And so the big idea is we're never not in danger of deviant doctrine. And I can tell you, as long as I've been in pastoral ministry, I've either just dealt with a distracting doctrine or I've been in the middle of dealing with a deflecting doctrine or we're about to deal with a deviant doctrine. It's always coming into the church and Paul's concern is that they don't get taken off course. We have no reason to believe that that was already happening in Rome. 
But Paul knows from all of his travels that it's only a matter of time before one of two camps of heretical, deviant, heterodoxical teachers make their way into the churches at Rome. Either the Judaizers, these legalistic people who tried to say that it was Jesus plus something, or these antinomian Gnostics, these ones that said, hey, your body's just physical. It doesn't matter. It's all gonna burn. Live however you want. God doesn't care. Paul says, I want you to be proactively ready and warned against this kind of teaching when it comes. So we're never not in danger of deviant doctrine. Now we're gonna hear our passage read this morning, Romans chapter 16, where we're gonna spend a little bit of focused time. Romans 16, verses 17 to 20. Megan will read that and we'll unpack it very briefly. Okay, this is Romans 16, 7 through 20. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent and as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Megan. Romans 16 verses 17 to 20. This is gonna be the last time we spend a concerted focused effort on Romans 16. And so just these last four verses before we end our time together this morning in benediction with the final verses of Romans 16, just very quickly in verse 17, Paul says, I appeal to you, I beseech you. But the word literally is parakaleo. I come alongside and I exhort you. It's the same word that is given as one of the titles of the Holy Spirit. I come alongside and I counsel you, brothers and sisters. He puts himself on their level as his last parting shot of what he wants them to know as a church to be equipped and edified as the bride and the body of Christ. To watch out, episkopos, to, to be looking, it's where we get our word for scope, to be looking in advance, to have a lookout and to be watching for these kinds of things that are gonna be coming. Watch out for those who cause two things, divisions, diastasis. They take what is static and they try to change it. They say, hey, this is what you believe, but I tell you, and they try to divide. And they typically have a tendency to pick off those who are more impressionable. See that in a moment. Those divisions have the potential of creating obstacles where we get our word for scandal, scandalous. It has the idea of tripping somebody up as they are on a journey of faith, perhaps even unto condemnation because they follow after some deviant doctrine that trips up their understanding of the faith. Paul says, be watchful. There will always be people like this that will come into the church. They will try to sow a deviant doctrine that will lead away the unsuspecting. It is contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Literally turn away from them. Turn your back on them. Have nothing to do with them in terms of allowing them to have any kind of leadership voice in the church. 
Paul says, this is contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, that doctrine being all that he's written thus far in the book of Romans. And also this is Paul wisely giving a tip of the proverbial cap to whoever started this church or these churches in Rome. It could have been Peter. It might've been Priscilla and Aquila. He's saying, you've been taught well. Don't let this come in and spoil what you've already gotten so far. He says, you have been taught, avoid them, turn away from them. Now, let me be very practical and clear about this. There's always going to be people coming into churches that believe different things, and that's okay. We want that, we accept that. What we cannot, however, tolerate is if someone comes into this church with a deviant doctrine that starts to stand up and say, hey, I want us to change what we believe about this, that, and the other. Nope. We have a plurality of eldership and pastors who have together prayerfully studied and formulated what we believe, our foundations of our doctrinal statement. We have eight essentials, these things that we do not negotiate. We put our foot in the ground and we don't compromise on those things. If you don't hold to those things, you can absolutely come but you're not allowed to start waves and start problems among the flock. In the same way, if I went to a different church and they did not hold to the doctrine of inerrancy, it would be wholly irresponsible and inappropriate for me to run down the center aisle during one of their liturgies and to scream about, you have to adopt inerrancy. That's not okay. That's not fair. That's bad for the flock. That's bad for the family. So we are accepting, we are an open, but we don't tolerate the teaching of and the leading of deviant doctrine. And we're never not in danger of deviant doctrine. Well, verse 18, Paul's gonna tell us why these people operate as they do. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. They're not slaves to Christ. They actually have a less dignified, less noble motivation, but their own appetites, literally their own bellies. It's, a, it's an expression to say they follow their own flesh. They desire power and influence and recognition and glory. And so they look for people who will listen to them and they begin to sow the seeds of these deviant doctrines. And by smooth talk and flattery, it's almost a play on words, this really smooth oration techniques, they hook people's attention. It's really interesting. They go after people whose thinking is not properly organized in terms of how the sources of truth are arranged in their mind. In other words, for some people, the word of God is not primary or preeminent. It's somewhere here on the back of what we might call the stage of truth. For them, experience and emotion, or maybe even science and reason or tradition are the sources of truth that are most important. Paul says, no, the word of God must be sola scriptura, like Luther said, as the most important, infallible, inerrant source of truth that we have. And when there is somebody who is not thinking in those terms, they are easy to be picked off and snatched. Paul says, we have to defend sound doctrine. Verse 19, for your obedience is known to all. Your reputation precedes you. I am so proud of who and what you are. Even from a distance, I pray for you. I pray blessing on you. I want you, churches of Rome, to finance and to resource my journey further west into Spain. I rejoice over you, but... I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Most people agree, and I am one of them, that this is a reference to what Jesus says. I want you to be shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. I want you to understand what's happening, but I don't want you to experience evil personally. Be aware of it, be able to discern it, but I don't want you to enter in. In other words, no, 
There's no such thing as market research with sin. We know what it is from what Solomon says. We know what it is from the book of Genesis chapters two and three. We know we don't have to experience it personally to know what it is. Paul says, I want you to maintain your purity. Word comes from a wine that is not mixed or, dis- or diluted or a metal that has not got impurities in it. You stay that way because of whose you are, because of what he has done. And then maybe one of my favorite verses in all of Romans chapter 16, verse 20. I want to remind you that it's Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And with what's going on in our community, our church, our country, and the world, this doesn't feel very triumphal. But look at what verse 20 says. The God of peace, peace-loving God, we like the sound of this God. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. It's important for us to be reminded that the source of deviant doctrines is always the devil. Whether the distributor of that doctrine knows it or not, ultimately the source and the distributor of a deviant doctrine is always the devil because he wants to tear down the bride and the body of Christ. But Paul promises here, soon the God of peace will crush Satan. Paul doesn't seem to think that Satan is just some impersonal force, the collective of evil in our world. No, He's a sentient being with a will and that will is to oppose, invert and thwart the plan of God and to destroy the people of God. But this is a very triumphal entry. Listen to what Paul says here. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's astonishing to me. Way back in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, Adam is told the seed of this woman will crush the head of the serpent that just deceived you both. That's the promise, the seed of this woman. And we've always assumed and understood that to mean Jesus, and it is. But in this age, it's not just the groom that will crush the head of the serpent. God of peace will crush Satan under your feet, church. That is triumphant. We have all hope that God will get it done in and through the church, despite what we might be experiencing in terms of digital distances, God's still getting it done in and through his church. Then finally here in verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's Paul's signature conclusion. He writes 13 epistles and in every single epistle, he concludes by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May you, may I, may we corporately as a body receive grace plus nothing. May the grace of Jesus and nothing else be with us. Paul persistently drives that home and I feel the burden of making sure that we all feel that as well on Palm Sunday. The end is certain, it is secure. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.